Welcome to Football Uncovered, a podcast that delivers you the most weird and wonderful stories about the men and women in charge of the biggest clubs in the world. This series will bring you some truly bizarre and often unbelievable tales of the highs and lows from the people in control of the purse strings. My name is Will Brazier, and along with Richard Johnson, we are joined by our man in the know, Sporting Intelligence's Nick Harris. Portsmouth Ownership Crisis was an absolute farce, arguably the most farcical ownership episode in Premier League history, involving arms deals, loan sharks, multiple con men and an assortment of villains, an owner who was literally never seen by anyone who at times appeared never to have even existed in human form, and the first Premier League club to enter financial administration while in the Premier League. Also, as a spin-off, this period also led to Harry Redknapp, latter the king of the jungle, going on trial for cheating the public purse facing time in prison if convicted a fantastic story yes this is one of the most complex periods of football ownership history so keep up if you can six owners in 14 years with two administrations and a fall from the upper echelon of the professional game right the way down to the bottom tier of the football league that's right this week we are chatting all things Portsmouth and it's a mad one Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to say a message of thanks to the audience because after the first two episodes, we've actually got into the top 20 in the iTunes podcast charts and we're really thankful for all your support and all your great reviews and ratings. Yeah, it's thanks, but like we're not number one, so we still need to keep pushing. So make sure you tell your friends. And if you've got any stories that you want us to deep dive on, I'm sure Nick knows about them, but he'll probably have a font of knowledge that we can pick up from and get in touch at Sporth. Yeah, a few suggestions that we've had. Forest. Yeah. Charlton. Oh. Stuff going on there. Berry. Lad got in touch with me about Berry. RIP. There's tons more, actually, that we don't know. So get in touch and let us know which clubs you want to hear from next. Also, give us a follow on Twitter at Sport and follow Nick Harris at Sport and Intel. Nick, Portsmouth. So many stories to come out of it, but I think we're going to find out a lot more today, aren't we? We are. Of all the crazy ownership episodes in English football, this has to rate up there with the very, very strangest, because most of the people who were involved were not involved for anything to do with football. I mean, it's just the maddest, maddest story. Uh, We're going to break it down today. So let's turn our attentions to the summer of 2006. Paint a picture for me. What's going on and who's involved? So in 2006, Portsmouth began the year being owned by a guy called Milan Mandaric. I think people might might remember him. Early that year, he sold a stake in Pompey to a guy called Sasha Gadamak. His full name's Alexandra Gadamak, known as Sasha, a Franco-Russian businessman. So he had cash to splash on Ben Gianni and various others. Harry Redknapp's Portsmouth, obviously Harry, was the manager. They survived 2005-06 by the skin of their teeth. And then Gadamak took full ownership in summer 2006. And Harry bought in a few bodies, as he's fond of saying. He signed England internationals, Glenn Johnson, David James, Sol Campbell. So the starting point really is this Gadamak investment. He takes over Pompey in summer 2006. But I think it might be useful if I introduce you to a cast of characters who we're going to hear about just to sort of help us through this. So some of the names will be, you need to sort of hang on to them because it does get complicated. But you've got Sasha Gadamax. That's the son, Sasha. His dad is Arkady Gadamak. 
and we'll call him the arms dealing Gator Mac because <laughs> he became embroiled in a scandal about trading arms in the Angolan Civil War. You've got Balram Chainrai, who's a British businessman of Nepali descent based in Hong Kong. He had some business run-ins with the arms dealing Gator Mac. And Levi Kushnir, an Israeli business associate of Chenrai. You've got a guy called Yoram Yosifov, who's a lawyer connected to Israeli mobsters. He owned dodgy care homes in the UK. He also owned a casino whose clients were mostly Russians. Daniel Azugi, a lawyer, a convicted fraudster who turned debt collector. He's Yosifov's business partner. And two more people, key to the story. Ali Al-Faraj, a Saudi businessman who we all thought might even be fictional at one point because nobody ever saw him. And his name often appeared on property transactions done by Yossisov. That's the guy who works with the Israeli mobsters. And last but not least, a guy called Shelly Narkis, Israel's biggest loan shark. He's a convicted extortionist, jewellery tamperer and a business associate of Arcadi arms dealer Gadamak. Now, I know that's a lot to get your head around, but this is just the starting point. It sounds like the perfect ingredients for some sort of gritty Netflix drama. Sounds like a shit version of Ocean's Eleven, where they don't succeed in what they actually want to do. <laughs> or they're all just like, <laughs> all just really bad frauds. Yeah, just all really bad. So there we go. Just to be specific about Arcady Gadamax, he was convicted in 2009 in France of $800 million of arms trafficking oh. during Angola's civil war in the 90s. And the arms trafficking conviction was later quashed, but he did serve time in prison for tax offences. So maybe we can return briefly to some football. Yes, please. So 2007-8, this is Gadamax, been there since 2006. And remember, Harry took Pompey to their highest league finish for 53 years. They finished eighth in the Premier League. You can hear my dog in the background. She's still angry about what happened. <laughs> and they won the FA Cup, beating Cardiff at Wembley. 1-0 with Carno scoring. I don't know if you can remember that team, that Pompey team, but it really was quite good. I mean, David James, Glenn Johnson, Sol Campbell, Sylvan Distan, Herman Haraidrasen, Lasana Diara, Pedro Mendes, Nico Kramchar, Suleiman Tari, Carno. The subs included Papa Bubu, Diop, Milan Barros and David Nugent. So it wasn't a bad team, was it? Yeah, there's some uh, real blaster in the past in there. Particular favourites being Pedro Mendes and surely Nico Cranjar as well. I think it's the wardrobe for me. <laughs> so that was the high point, but it went wrong from there. Badly wrong. They did reach another FA Cup final two years later, which is often forgotten. To be honest, I'd yeah, forgotten I'd before forgotten I started that. putting the notes. But but they um, they reached the Cup final in 2010 and lost to Chelsea. But by that point, they would already be the first Premier League club in administration. They'd been deducted points. They'd been relegated. And they were wondering how to tackle debts by that point of 105 million quid. So... It was just a complete and utter car crash. And really, it didn't have anything to do with football or even the bad running of a football club. It was basically about all the dodgy people we've mentioned at the top and unpaid debts and business dealings and revenge amongst that group of people. So maybe the best way to tell it is, first of all, break down that extraordinary cast of dodgy characters (laughs) and then the chaos of the meltdown. And then look at some of the things related to this episode, you know, the long tales, the things that happened afterwards, including Harry's trial. You know, it's a complicated story, but it's absolutely bonkers. Yeah, there's some mad bits to it. Let's jump in. So we've got 2006, first character, Sasha Gadamak. 
he takes over Pompey from, as you said earlier, Milan Mandarich. But he's using his dad's money. Yeah, he was a businessman. His dad was sort of really rich, hundreds of millions, possibly billions. And it was always the case that we believed Sasha was using his dad's money. And later, when Arcady, arms dealer Gadamac, got into a bit of bother, he actually declared Portsmouth as his asset and claimed that it was worth 300 million. So, yeah, it was the dad's money. I presume, though, at that time as well, like this uh, overseas investor, like in the club, probably thinking that good things may be on the way, particularly of where they were uh, in the Premier League at that point in time. But again, it gets a little bit more complicated than that, doesn't it? In terms of as you peel beneath the layers of this takeover and the dad's involvement and some of the other characters. Tell us how that was all working behind the scenes. Yeah, so on the face of it, Harry's established this squad of players, including a load of England players. They're doing well. They're on the way to winning the FA Cup. But behind the scenes, Arcady, arms dealer Gadamac, has made an agreement to buy a property company from Mr Chenrai and his business partner, Kushnir. So he's totally unrelated to uh, Pompey. That was in 2007. The deal was brokered by Yossisov. That's the the guy with the underworld figures. He Mm -hmm. he later died. He died much later, 2016. But at the time, he was around Portsmouth quite a lot. And he was one of Israel's wealthiest lawyers. And this is not to do with the club at that point in time. It's all happening separately. It's nothing whatsoever to do with the club. So in 2008, Gadamak, the arms dealer, was being investigated for the civil war arms trafficking. Happens to us all sometimes, you know. Exactly. I mean, I don't think I've been investigated for arms trafficking for, for weeks now. But <laughs> it's the sort of thing that, you know, it's an occupational hazard, isn't it, when you're a football fan? <laughs> He was also being investigated for property trading impropriety in Israel. And that was linked to his relationship with Shelley Narkis, the loan shark, who was also the convicted extortionist and jury tamperer. Again, none of this anything to do with Portsmouth. Yeah. Pressure was growing on Arcady, though, because of the investigation into his arms dealing and to his property impropriety. And he fled to Moscow, unable to pay the money that he owed Mr. Chemrai and Mr. Kushnir. Still nothing to do with football. And this also left him exposed to claims from the broker, that's Yossisov, with the Underworld Connection, and Azugi, the fraudster turned debt collector. Arkady, this is the dad, he also owned Beitar Jerusalem, the football club in Israel. And the people he owed money to, including Chenrai and Kushnir, nominally they were given claim on that club's assets, but it wasn't worth very much. So practically they couldn't extract the money that they owed from this property deal which still isn't anything to do with Portsmouth. So to be clear on that, he's made this agreement to buy the property company, but he still owed them money. So he essentially just leveraged a bit of this Israeli club that he owned to get them off his back. Yeah, but they couldn't get money out of it because it wasn't worth very much. Fair enough. So the debt collector and the loan shark decide to go and pay a visit to Arkady Gadamark in Moscow to say, we want our money back. They got nothing. A few months after the FA Cup win... In 2008, Arkady Gadamak, arms dealer, lists Portsmouth amongst his assets in a court filing, saying they were worth £300 million. But the fact is they already had crippling debts as a result of the players signed by Harry and with big wages. And Sasha and Arkady wanted to sell the club. But the listing of Portsmouth amongst Arkady's assets at that point was like a red rag to a bull to the people Arkady owed money to. And this is where it became an issue for Portsmouth, because it's absolutely nothing to do with Portsmouth. But they see Portsmouth as the way to get their money back. If they can somehow get their claws into Portsmouth, they'll be able to extract from there the 
tens of millions of pounds that they say Arcadi owes them. Because his son used his dad's money to buy the club. Absolutely. So now Portsmouth, in the eyes of Chenrai, Kushner, Yossisov, Azugi and Narkis, they see that Portsmouth is struggling and is going to be sold. And they think, well, if we can take it over, we will basically be able to asset strip it to get back the money we owe. This is the plan. They're going to get the clause into Portsmouth, which is now starting to become distressed. And they're going to sell all the players, pocket all the money, take all the TV money, and then do a runner. This is the working hypothesis of what these people are going to do. How much of that was known at the time? At the time, very little. Again, it was sort of strange things were going on. Some of these characters were turning up as directors and shadow directors at Portsmouth, and we were trying to piece together exactly what they were doing there and why they were there. The really odd thing, arguably, but the way that they tried to take over Portsmouth was via Ali Al-Faraj. This is the mystery Saudi who worked with Yossisov on some property deals, or rather whose name appeared as a frontman on various property deals. And the idea was Farage would be the frontman to buy the club, and then if they got hold of this distressed, indebted club, they'd asset strip it and get their money back. The Gadamax, though, didn't want to sell to this motley crew for obvious reasons, because they were only offering five million quid for the for the club. And instead... They sold the club initially to Suleiman Al-Fahim, a man whose name keeps cropping up in these episodes. This is the apprentice star from the UAE, who was Sheikh Mansour's early spokesman in the Man City takeover, and a bit of a buffoon, actually. He promised five million up front to the Gadamax and a guarantee of 29 million more later. His bid was faltering and it took from sort of May 2009 to August 2009 for the Gadamax to accept it, but they did accept it. And so the club went into the hands of Suleiman Al-Fahim with the motley crew of loan sharks and, and crooks waiting in the wings. Farage, is that? Farage, yeah. Fronted cool. by Farage, who may or may not actually be real at this point. We don't know. <laughs> Guess how many days... The glorious reign of Suleiman Al-Fahim lasted at Portsmouth. Well, I'm looking God. at the notes, so I don't want to cheat, but <laughs> it's not very long, is it? The club ran out of money after 43 days and we're back in crisis. So what happened is that, in fact, the club did end up nominally in the hands of the mysterious Alif Al-Faraj, backed by right. Chainrai, Kushnir, Yossisov, Azugi and Narkis in summer 2009. And it was owned via a company called Falcon Drone, which was nominally owned by this guy called Ali Al-Faraj. So it's wow. gone Gaidamak, Fahim, Fahim 43 days, Faraj, back post, crossing from the lads. Leap like a salmon, yeah. motley crew <laughs> hanging around in the background. Nobody really knows why they're there or what they're doing at this point. And Al-Faraji is the guy that we think might not be... Might not exist. We're not might not up. exist. Now... During this summer, I spent quite a few days doing nothing but trying to get to the bottom of who is Ali Al-Faraj. Does he even exist? I spoke to business people in Saudi Arabia. I spoke to the Saudi Arabian embassy. I spoke to um, journalists who may have met him. Nobody had met him. Nobody had seen him. Nobody confirmed biographical background of him. He didn't have a social media footprint. Is there more on the Loch Ness Monster, basically, at this point? Absolutely. But the the ludicrous thing at this point, of course, the checks that the Premier League did on this guy to see whether he was legitimate or whatever, effectively amounted to 
seeing a photocopy purportedly of this guy's passport. The Saudi embassy eventually confirmed that he was a real person living in Riyadh and that his name had been used on documents for property deals in London. But in terms of the Premier League, the only evidence the Premier League had about him as a person was they'd seen a photocopy of his passport. So technically speaking, in summer 2009, Portsmouth was owned by a photocopy of a passport. I tried to get into Oceana once in, at uni in Southampton with a photocopy of my passport and they wouldn't even let me in. Wow. I know, but in 2009, the Premier League let a bloke buy a football club with that. This whole Portsmouth episode arguably really made the Premier League well, massively embarrassed, but it really made them sit up and take notice. And, and there hasn't been such a chaotic ownership episode of all the ownership episodes as bad as this one since. Because from then on, the Premier League made damn sure that they did proper corporate due diligence on owners. Still, um, it hasn't stopped people trying to do that. You know, people, I think, meet their match with you, Nick, with your investigative skills, like we've seen with here with Alfarage, like with Kenny Huang. You know, if there's one thing that I think we can say to anyone thinking about buying a Premier League football club, make sure that you're a real person because otherwise yeah. Nick Harris is going to find you. Yeah. So what was in effect happening here was that Chain Rai Kushner Azugi Yossisov and a London solicitor, an old friend of Yossisov, they were basically trying to get control of whatever assets Pompey had in effect to get the money back that they felt was owed to them by Arcady, the arms dealer, from the failed property deal. So... Falcon drone with these guys in the background and fronted by the photocopy of a passport, you now basically own the club. In October 2009, Chen Rai and Kushner loaned Pompey £6 million. So these are the guys sort of behind the scenes of the deal. And according to evidence later produced in the High Court, uh, were to be repaid £7 million in two months, an interest rate in excess of 130% APR. Wow. And in return... For this loan that they got back with loads of money, they took a fixed charge. That means they basically had first dibs on Fratton Park, that's the ground, and 90% of the um, shareholding in Portsmouth. So now they were in a position, should they want to asset strip and do whatever they wanted, basically put them in prime position to control when or whether the club went into administration, put them first in the queue to benefit from the asset sales if the club went bust. And this is just a sort of simplified version. There's another company called Portpin, which was a vehicle through which they used to control the flow of the money. And at one point, the lawyer was instructed to send the Premier League cash that the club was due, not to club accounts, but to them in their bank accounts. The Premier League found this out and actually stopped that. But HMRC then issued a winding up order against Portsmouth, two of them actually, the second of which was in December that year. And Pompey went into administration again in, in February 2010. I mean, it's so complicated, but... You've now got a football club that had its best ever finish since it was the league title. People maybe don't realise, but Pompey won the the top division back in the 50s twice. And they'd had their highest league finish since that period in 2008 and gloriously won the FA Cup. But the cost of that, the massive cost of the wages and the players, allied with this business dealings that's nothing at all to do with football, meant that before two years later, the club was on its knees in administration, more than £100 million in debt, and just in a massive, massive crisis with an administrator called Andronicu openly questioning the legitimacy of what the hell was going on and had gone on at Portsmouth. Wow. I mean, the Premier League at this point is just embarrassed and shocked and just thinking, what the hell is going on? Because you've got a club in administration with points deduction, 
guaranteed to be relegated. It's just an absolute shambles. And it feels like with this, that yeah, obviously they, they probably had a slightly higher cost base maybe than they should have done, but this wasn't because of some owner coming in with these like grand visions and plans and trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. It's this, again, point of leverage that these almost loan sharks have swarmed around the asset and then seen the writing on the wall and taken everything they can out of it ultimately. Yeah, I mean, there's two things going on. One is that the Gatormax have have come in and spent too much money and basically let costs run out of control by right. letting Harry buy the players and pay them really good wages. And so the costs are out of control. And maybe they should have controlled that much earlier. But the double whammy okay. is that rather than stay at the club, reduce your costs, cut back, try and make things work, just at the time when they could have done that, they decided instead to sell. And because of Arcady Gadamax non-footballing dealings with what we call the Motley crew, they come in knowing that the club is distressed, making the absolute most out of the fact that Portsmouth is now distressed and they can come in and basically try and bleed it dry to get the money back that they feel they're owed. So it's a combination of the two things. It's mismanagement and then the chaotic business life of Arcady Gadamax. Because I, I remember at the time, I know we're going on to administration as well. I just remember like, the bizarre stories of like all the creditors, obviously some were high and were due millions, but I just remember like painters and decorators outside like Fratton Park that were owned like thousands of pounds of work that they'd done and, and not been paid. It was like a, just ruined the local area really, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, should we, should we move on to some of those creditors? Because when they did go into administration, I got hold of this document and again, people can go to Sporting Intelligence see the whole document, but even now looking at it again as we, as we put together the notes for this it's just extraordinary the list of businesses and people who were owed money 105 million pounds i mean there was um money owed to football clubs for for outstanding transfer fees there was wages owed to individual players there was more than 17 million pounds actually 17 million 303,817 pounds and 87 pence owed to a variety of football clubs in unpaid transfer fees. Chelsea was still owed more than a million quid for Glenn Johnson, who'd already gone to Liverpool, for example, by that stage, while Udinese were owned cash for Sully Montari, who also had gone. So they they still owed money for players they no longer even had on their books. Then there was unpaid historic bonuses, totalling £1.86 million. So bonuses that should have gone to players for the FA Cup. There was... £282,000 alone was owed to Peter Crouch, who was also part of that team. Wow. <laughs> there was money owed to 26 agents and scouts, including £2,074,352.90 owed to Peeney Zahavi. You know, before we'd ever heard of Jorge Mendes, Peeney Zahavi was, was, I'm sure you remember, the, the, the world's sort of biggest super agent in football. There was £225,000 owed to Willie Mackay, I don't know if you you oh, be yes. aware who Willie Mackay is. Willie Mackay, he cropped up in the Harry Redknapp trial. I mean, he gave Harry a racehorse once. So he was owed 225 million. Um, Six-figure sums owed to a wide variety of middlemen from Spain, Monaco, Dubai, Jersey, Jerusalem, the Czech Republic, Switzerland. And then there were money owed to former owners of Portsmouth via various companies, which is more than 38 million. And then... Pompey also owed 17 million to HMRC in tax, national insurance. 
And then there's a 15 page section of trade creditors, which is a sort of a roll call of financial heartbreak for local businesses, service providers, utility firms. And there's 30 creditors per page, um, 400 trade creditors. A local school is owed more than £40,000, although we don't know for what, presumably something to do with community projects or something. St John Ambulance, always in these football meltdowns, you'll get the local St John Ambulance owed money for providing life-saving services. In this case, 2,700 quid. The Scout Association, 697 quid. I speculated at the time that maybe a previous owner was trying to earn a badge of some sort for adventuring, maybe. (laughs) And then there was £1,725 owed to Fruity Faces Limited of Isha, a firm that that, um, designed and manufactured individual fruit cases that keep fruit fresh and cool and ready to eat whenever a child is ready. So whether Harry's wife sent him to work each day with a banana in a Fruity Face Limited case, I don't know, but (laughs) they owed £1,725. You know what I feel sorry for out of this? The Portsmouth finance team. That must be a mess with all those people coming to you every month. You haven't paid our invoice for 127 quid for our Fruity Faces. You owe us two grand for St John's Ambulance or for the Scouts. It must have been a mess. The people owed wages. Glenn Johnson's owed £235,000 in wages. Silver and Distance were owed 300000 This This is just bonuses, by the way, outstanding bonuses. There's a whole list of, of agencies, companies. I mean, it was just absolute chaos. So what happens is Chen Rai, that's the guy who's who's owed the money that set all this mayhem in train, owed money by Arcady. He he basically takes control after the administration, although he does later sell to another Russian businessman, Vladimir Antonov. But it turns out that he was subject to a Europe-wide arrest warrant for alleged asset stripping of a Lithuanian bank, <laughs> as you do. So they managed to sell it to someone more dodgy. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, let's cut a long story short, another administration happens and the supporters' trust takes over, which, you know, many people might think ultimately they've been to the bottom, they've had a terrible, terrible time, but now the fans are in control. Maybe there'll be a happy ending there. It doesn't quite turn out like that because the supporters' trust don't stay in charge for good. But that's what happened as a result of the administration process. And I still think to this day that we're not certain really who ended up with what financially. It'd be good if they gave the uh, ownership of the club to the scouts and it was like a weekly task oh, yeah. to, uh, to look after. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it it got so complex and so legally complex with these people. I mean, I, I was covering this day to day for the Independent at the time, um, you know, trying to investigate what the hell was going on, spending days on the trail of Farage. You know, you have to be super careful uh, when writing it for legal reasons. I think May 2010, when the football authorities were investigating what happened, I filed a piece for the paper to try and describe the characters and lay it out for the readers. And and the newspaper's most senior lawyer called me at home after I filed and said, Nick, I can only describe your first few paragraphs as a drive-by libel. Can (laughs) Can we talk about toning it down? I mean, that piece to this day is still on the Independence website and it's largely intact as I wrote it in fact because when I actually went through the list of questions you know the lawyer saying now then you call this person an arms dealer where can we point to that and I can say well we can point to the French conviction in a court of law about arms dealing (laughs) you know you say this person is a loan shark well we can point to this ruling in in Israel where this person is a loan shark you know you say this person is a fraudster and a jury tamper. Okay, yeah, we'll point you to this court case. So actually the article <laughs> went through. But it, it's so extraordinary at the time that you get a lawyer ringing you up saying, 
you know, your first paragraph is is a drive-by libel. That that is gives you a flavour of what we're dealing with here. Have we got anything to worry about for this podcast then, Nick? Are we going to have heavies knocking on our door? No. I mean, <laughs> Harry might ring up and, and, and try and, um, from the jungle or wherever he is, and, and, um, and try and convince you that he didn't overspend. But obviously, you know, success does cost money in football, and he, he was the person spending the money. But obviously it's not his fault all this happened. But um, the spending that put Portsmouth into difficulties in the first place was obviously under Harry's watch. It is a fascinating tale there and and sort of web of what happened. Like I certainly was totally naive to that happening and sort of how it unfolded. So it's an amazing story if you're not a Portsmouth fan. Yeah, well, I think the fallout continues as well, doesn't it? And a case I remember at the time, I think it was when Harry had gone on to Spurs and there was sort of those early rumblings of him maybe becoming England manager, which, you know, at the time seems a perfect fit but he was obviously um went on to have the court case for tax evasion didn't he Nick? yeah i mean harry has had a few sort of scraps and scrapes along the way first of all you know when he went back to portsmouth from southampton in 2005 before he put together the team that won the fa cup you know he was subject to an investigation into an alleged 60 million pound betting sting over his appointment on Betfair, a load of money had been traded it wasn't 16 million pounds of um of money because some of the money you know, it gets double and triple counted in various ways on the exchanges, but it was a lot of money. And certainly it was established that associates of his had placed money on him going to Portsmouth when nobody knew. If it were proven that Harry had told them, then that would effectively be insider trading. But it couldn't be established beyond doubt that Harry had specifically had a role in doing that. And so so nothing happened. But the much more serious thing for Harry basically ended up in court for allegedly cheating the public purse over a variety of payments that were made into a bank account that he held in Monaco. And as you do, he named it after his dog. So I don't know if you remember that that court case. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. Was, What's was... everyone's favourite memory of the court case? Well, I mean, so many, Nick. It was such an emotional time. <laughs> the thing that sticks out for me was Harry's dog. Rosie, it's all tied yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah. The bank yeah. account. Yeah. So I attended court for quite a few days of the trial. And it was very weird. You've got the sort of the defendant's box, which is basically a big perspex sort of seating area in which Harry Redknapp and Milan Mandaric just sat there while all these legal proceedings went on around them. And, and Harry famously sort of said that he didn't know how to work a mobile phone. He was dyslexic. He'd forget. He had a column in a newspaper and he'd just forget to ask them for the money. The court heard that he was owed hundreds of thousands of pounds that he just forgot to ask for. He allegedly had an 189,000 payment from Mandaric to his bank account in Monaco. There were two counts of cheating the public revenue. And it was a huge deal. I mean, he was, by the point of the trial, he was Tottenham manager. And so you had sort of the head of communications for Tottenham sitting in the public gallery, you know, during the case. Jamie, his son, was there for most days of the hearing as well. It was a very strange thing. And he was cleared. He was found not guilty. So he could go back to work. But yeah, that's one fallout. And the other fallout is obviously the footballing fallout from the administration in the Premier League era, which basically led them down the divisions. I mean, for a club that had ambitions in 2008 to be vying for a top six or top seven slot and FA Cup winners, to spending four years in League Two, being taken over your supporters, being bought by former CEO of the Walt Disney Corporation, Michael Eisner, who now owns the the club. It's a fairly extraordinary journey. 
sure is. It feels like, yeah, now they hopefully through the worst. And as you say, with Michael Eisner sort of being part of the uh, mother company, hopefully there's they've got a bit of stability and uh, it's a platform for them to build on. Crazy. I don't think anyone could have expected, like as you say, when they were in the Premier League and had that FA Cup win that within five years, they would be in League Two. Yeah, it's just an extraordinary cast of characters that coalesced around this story. And, you know, as the Premier League has become more and more an international and global phenomenon, attracting people from all around the world. So the stories get weirder and weirder in some cases. And I, I think Portsmouth, for me, possibly the weirdest of them all. I think the only thing missing from this would, would be if they borrowed some money from a, a UN embargoed Iranian bank. But, you know, <laughs> we heard about that in our Leeds episode. Yeah. Will, what do you think about that? Learn something new? Well, I'm always learning when I'm spending time with Nick and I just want to hunt down Ali Al-Faraj, see if he actually was real and if he's just a figment of someone's imagination. Presume his name's still on a number of properties despite sort of Yusuf passing away. Wouldn't it be great if we got the old gang back together? <laughs> and they put in a bid for what? which club? Who'd be right for a takeover? Uh, yeah. Arsenal? Yeah. Do you think Stan Kroenke could be persuaded to sell to Ali Al Farage and the crew? It'd be great, wouldn't it? If they see that photocopy of the passport, I think it could be anywhere. I know. Really, yeah. uh, exactly. Could yeah. be on. Um, well, if you are Ali Al Farage and you are listening, please drop us a rating and a review. Let us know what you think. And why not recommend it to a friend? Also, if you're on Twitter, give us a follow at Sporth and follow Nick Harris at Sporting Intel. This has been Football Uncovered. Thank you for listening and goodbye.